Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. This is Lily Gorin with the New Books Network, the New Books and Political Science podcast. Today, it is my pleasure to speak with John Hudak of the Brookings Institution about his new book, Marijuana, A Short History. I recently used this book in my public policy course where we were exploring marijuana as a case study along with a number of other case studies. I have to... This is Lily Gorin with the New Books Network, the New Books and Political Science podcast. Today, it is my pleasure to speak with John Hudak of the Brookings Institution about his new book, Marijuana, A Short History. I recently used this book in my public policy course where we were exploring marijuana as a case study along with a number of other case studies. I have to say that my students really liked the book. They found it accessible, interesting. They forgave me for some of the other books I had signed them as a result of this book, and they found it really useful in understanding the policy around marijuana in the United States. So I'm thrilled to speak with John Hudak today um, about this brief but excellent book. John, can you tell us a little about about yourself and how you came to write about, from what I understand, also speak about marijuana. Uh, Sure. Well, uh, thanks uh, very much, Lily. I'm excited for today's chat. Uh, My name is John Hudak. I'm a senior fellow in governance studies and the deputy director of the Center for Effective Public Management at the Brookings Institution. Um, I'm a political scientist by training, and I've been at Brookings now for five years, where most of my research is actually on the executive branch of the federal government. Uh, but I, as uh, Brookings people tend to do, also take deep dives into specific areas of policy. And marijuana policy was not something I was trained or that I really had any interest in, to be honest. But uh, in 2012, as Colorado and Washington State were considering uh, legalizing adult use recreational marijuana, I had a colleague come down to my office and ask me if I was interested in the topic. And I said, no, I'm not interested in the topic at all. He said, well, uh, you know, if one of these states happens to pass these initiatives, uh, those states are going to have to set up a regulatory system. They're going to have to have new leadership. Uh, They're going to have to deal with uh, tax policy, and a whole host of other issues that you talk about in, in studying the presidency and the bureaucracy. He said, why don't you take a look at this topic and uh, see what you think? And honestly, I knew nothing about marijuana policy uh, to that point. And the more I read, the more interested I became. And I found it to be um, a really excellent case study uh, or topic, rather, uh, to be able to ask a lot of the questions I ask traditionally in my work Uh, just in a very different, uh, pretty interesting context. Cool. And I mean, I I think that's, you know, the book really gets into the sort of various dimensions that marijuana as a policy area and as a part of an understanding of sort of regulation and government is really, really fascinating, particularly right now. You've titled this book A Short History, and it is a short book. Um, But I want to ask you, why is the history of marijuana important, particularly at this very moment? 
the history of marijuana is important for a variety of reasons. Uh, chief among them is exactly what you said. This is an interesting and exciting time for marijuana policy. It's something that is changing uh, every day. Uh, we have now 28 and soon to be 29 states in the U.S., plus the District of Columbia that have medical marijuana. Um, we have eight, eight states plus D.C. Uh, that have recreational marijuana. And uh, it's difficult, I think, at times for people to understand everything that's going on in their own backyard when it comes to this policy area. Uh, but they also have a, a tough time understanding how we've gotten to the point we're at right now with this policy. Uh, marijuana policy in the United States is one with a storied history and one that I uh, fully came to appreciate while I was doing research for this book. And I think it helps, uh, under, as people understand the history, uh, we understand how we got to total prohibition, uh, why we started to think differently about prohibition, and why Americans of all uh, shapes and sizes are uh, coming to the table now thinking that legalization for medical or adult use uh, is uh, possibly a reform that's going to help achieve certain public policy outcomes in a way that prohibition has not. So in, in that regard, I mean, I think one of the issues that you dive into is why is marijuana problematized in the way that it is? And you, you know, you do talk about sort of the negatives of the counterculture in the 1960s and the 70s, but you also go back all the way to the turn of the century, um, where it's associated with, um, Mexicans after the Mexican American War. Can you talk a little bit about the sort of racialization and the problematization of marijuana? Absolutely. So uh, the history of marijuana is something that is steeped uh, quite heavily in, in race and, and politics in this country. Uh, I had uh, been exposed a little bit to that, uh, the understanding of that along the way. But until I started to take this deep dive in the research, I, I didn't fully appreciate uh, how much. And uh, there's a passage in the book, uh, early in the book, in chapter one, where I, I go to great lengths to justify why I title the book the way I did, why I used the word marijuana instead of using the word cannabis. Uh, and the favorite, my favorite story I like to tell about this uh, choice and, and the tension that exists even around what you call it um, is I was at a conference uh, here in Arlington, Virginia, actually, right across the street from my apartment, but it was a national conference on drug policy. And I was listening to a speaker who said, um, I, I will not spell cannabis with an M. And I thought, what in the hell is this guy talking about? How you won't spell cannabis with an M. What he was saying was he would not even use the word marijuana because of its racial history. And, uh, it, it as I said, it, there's a tension in the discipline. There's a tension in the advocacy community about using the word marijuana because it was a word that was used to vilify uh, Mexican immigrants after the Spanish-American War when this uh, product, when cannabis, uh, began to uh, be used as a racial device uh, to pit us versus them, Americans versus Mexicans, uh, or, or good people versus bad people. And uh, very quickly, the phrase cannabis uh, fell out of use, even though 
in the 1800s, it was used medicinally in the United States and around the world, and it was always listed as cannabis, either an oil or a tincture or whatever. Um, and so uh, understanding uh, that that started with the uh, uh, short history after the Mexican-American War um, and then continued to where marijuana became something that was associated with the African-American community. Um, it was a jazz drug, um, which was code word for black. Um, it was in Harlem and it was in New Orleans and it was in all those bad places where all those bad people lived. And this was not simply, um, you know, uh, just racists uh, spouting these uh, words at, you know, Thanksgiving dinner or, or in their living room. Uh, this was the government. This was major newspapers uh, like the, those owned by the Hearst family um, really began to use this phrase in as divisive a way as possible. And again, to um, make sure that those divisions also had political benefit. And and you also then talk about it not only with regard to the racialization and, and the association with Mexicans and with African-Americans, but you also talk about how it became associated also with the counterculture in the 1960s and 70s and, and you know, sort of the lawlessness um, that was going on mostly by white young Americans who were protesting the war and advocating for civil rights and women's rights. And you sort of talk about the fact that it had a bit of an outsized reputation in its association with those those groups and those movements. Absolutely. I think all along the way, um, the racialization of marijuana um, had some level of uh, reality or, or seeds of reality in it. And that is, um, it is true. Um, there were Mexicans and, and Mexican Americans who used marijuana. That is, that is not false. Um, the, the number of individuals using it and the extent of that use, of course, was hyperbolized. And the same that, uh, you know, jazz musicians liked marijuana. You, you, even back to the 1930s, you have songs like Muggles, which is um, uh, a code word for marijuana. This was something that the jazz, um, uh, the jazz community did enjoy, uh, but it wasn't something that was as dangerous or as widespread um, as government officials would have you believe. And the same was true for, for hippies in the 60s, beatniks in the 50s, and the counterculture later. Yes, they liked marijuana. You know, it's hard to not see people smoking marijuana when you see old clips from Woodstock or in anti-war rallies. And so there is a reality in that. But what happened uh, was that uh, that counterculture became not just something to, uh, you know, look at and point at and make fun of or, or you know, poke at, but uh, it became something that was very political, both in terms of uh, the political nature of those groups themselves and the pushback against those groups. And so you, you see politicians, uh, particularly Richard Nixon, um, pushing back against that counterculture and uh, making it so that it wasn't only the anti-war protests um, that were dangerous or the threat of communism uh, within these communities that was dangerous, but they were also using what was described as a, a deadly drug, a, a drug that had the most outrageous effects on the human psyche and on human behavior. And it became a politically uh, divisive uh, conversation, but it also became a political tool for those who were able to use it best. And Richard Nixon was masterful at using marijuana uh, to advance his own uh, political interests. 
And so in, in that regard, marijuana has become in many ways this sort of demonized and stigmatized drug that is, you know, that is lumped in with heroin and with cocaine and with crack and so forth. Um, and of course, it's, it is, as you note, um, regulated within the Justice Department and it, it has, um, you know, it, it carries quite significant punishments with it. And, and one of the aspects that my students and I talked about with regard to, you know, sort of changing approaches to marijuana is it has to also potentially go through a cultural shift with regard to understanding, you know, what marijuana is and how it operates. And so in that regard, I guess my next question in terms of your research is now that we have a number of states that have legalized recreational marijuana um, and also, you know, the headlines today, yesterday are the push in Canada um, to legalize marijuana. How has marijuana itself been regulated in the United States besides being a Schedule One drug, um, and how is that changing? It's it's a complicated regulatory framework. Um, it, it, well, I should say it's a complicated uh, regulatory framework, and it's also a simple one. The simple one is that marijuana is a Schedule One drug uh, according to federal law, and that means it is. Uh, illegal in every circumstance, no questions asked. The only way in which marijuana can be used legally in the United States is through a, a federally approved research project um, that has to use marijuana grown by the only government approved grower, which is at the University of Mississippi. Otherwise, there is no space in which marijuana is legal. That's pretty simple regulation. But in our system of federalism, it's, of course, much more complicated. And that complication arises with exactly what you said, states reforming their own laws in violation of federal law, or at least their reforms are not violating federal law, but they are authorizing the violation of federal law. And it becomes a uh, from there, it becomes very complicated because every state regulates it a little bit differently, particularly on the medical marijuana side, where as I said, 28 states in D.C. have uh, legal, uh, legal systems in place, and probably by the time uh, this podcast airs, it will be 29 because there's a medical marijuana bill sitting on the desk of the West Virginia governor right now awaiting his signature. Uh, and the way in which that um, is regulated, as I said, varies from state to state. In some states, you're not allowed to smoke marijuana. You can have edibles or oils or tinctures or other – or you can vape it. Um, but you can't smoke it. In other states, uh, you, you can buy very small amounts. Uh, some states, you can buy significant amounts. Uh, the conditions on the medical side, the conditions that you have to have in order to qualify for medical marijuana vary widely um, from place to place. And so it ends up being a very complex patchwork of regulations that, in which some work better than others, and states are uh, frequently adjusting their regulations as they learn more about uh, what this drug does, what it can be used for, uh, and what uh, risks exist. And, and so uh, that, that means that my book is already outdated because uh, the, the landscape changes so quickly, like, like most history books are quickly outdated. Uh, but it, it also shows just how uh, interesting and how complicated uh, and how important this issue is uh, to the policy landscape in the United States. 
And, and that's, you know, that's why my students and I were looking at it because of its its complex nature and, and how it showcases the peculiarity of our, our federal system, too. Um, but I wanted to ask you a follow-up question with regard to the strangeness of the regulation, because you spend some time in the book talking about the problem for banking and taxing and taxes around sort of the changing regulatory policy because of the prohibitions with regard to the drug trade in banking and taxes. Can you talk a little bit about that? Uh, absolutely. The uh, banking and tax policy around marijuana is some of the most uh, complicated and I would say mindless um, areas of this, this breakdown in federalism. Uh, in my work, I tend not to advocate for or against marijuana reform. What I advocate for is smart public policy. And this disjoint between federal and state policy creates uh, secondary consequences that are real and are uh, problematic. So uh, what, what does this matter for, for taxes and for banking? Well, because marijuana is still illegal at the federal level in all cases, uh, financial institutions in the United States are not supposed to... Uh, deal with illegal uh, operations. So you, drug cartels aren't supposed to use banks. Um, prostitution rings aren't supposed to use banks. Uh, and, and drug dealers, which every marijuana uh, seller in the United States is in the eyes of federal law, um, uh, they're not supposed to access financial institutions either. Uh, so what that means is that marijuana is a cash-only business which creates serious um, uh, risks for security, for personal security to businesses um, and to their employees. It also creates serious risks for uh, accounting security. That is, it's much easier to cook the books in a cash-only business than it is in a business that has access to financial institutions. Uh, that exists entirely because of a federal government that is unwilling to respond in a way that uh, reflects the changing dynamics of policy at the state level. On the tax side, uh, the same is true. Because it is federally illegal, uh, marijuana businesses are still required to pay their taxes. In fact, it's, it's funny. Every federally um, illegal operation in the U.S. is still required to pay taxes. So again, if you run a prostitution ring or you're a cocaine dealer or you're a terrorist, you are still supposed to pay federal taxes. Of course. But, but yeah, exactly. Um, it, but they, the federal government does not allow an illegal operation to have access to tax write-offs. And so there's a provision of the Internal Revenue Code, provision 280E, which says uh, pretty much that. Uh, if you are a drug dealer, you, uh, your operation cannot have traditional business tax credits. Uh, so the, the problem, of course, is that when you invest in a company, typically you write off that investment. If you build a new facility or whatever, you write off that investment on your taxes. And it's the way that uh, businesses grow and it's the way that businesses remain financially uh, stable. Uh, the marijuana industry can't do that. So early on, uh, when oftentimes you'll see uh, some companies have very low tax burdens because they're doing so much research, so much development, so much investment and in building, uh, marijuana businesses are the opposite. You'll oftentimes see businesses that will have 150, 175, 200% tax burdens on their revenue. Uh, and so 
uh, that creates a situation in which businesses are not sustainable in the short run. And that means that only certain people who have certain levels of wealth um, pre-existing can get through those early years. Uh, but even if you get through the early years, you're still facing tremendous tax burdens that any other legal business in the United States does not face. And again, it's due entirely to a federal government that won't catch up. So I wanted to follow up on that that point, too. And, you know, your book was published at the end of 2016, um, and I'm sure it went to press long before the election. Um, and I know that my students and I had this conversation about potentially the change with regard to the direction of the Justice Department under the Trump administration and the Sessions um, Justice Department from the, the Obama administration and the Holder and Lynch Justice Departments. How does this work now that we're moving forward with more states either having legal um, marijuana or medical access to marijuana, and yet the Justice Department that is potentially pursuing more criminal charges or investigations into marijuana? It's, it's difficult to understand what, uh, how it's going to work because we don't know exactly what the Justice Department is going to do. The uh, marijuana industry is held together uh, in large part because of a memo that came out of the Justice Department uh, when Eric Holder was attorney general. It was actually one of his deputies um, who issued a memo. His name was James Cole, and it's come to be known as the Cole Memo, or actually the, the Cole Memos, because there's one and there's two, and two is more important uh, because it's more of a blanket. And what it says is the memo is to U.S. attorneys, to federal prosecutors, and it essentially says if the state has reformed its laws, uh, its marijuana laws for recreational or medical uh, use, and companies in those states are uh, complying with those state laws, and the state sets up a robust regulatory system, and those actors within those states are not engaging in behaviors in certain trouble areas, and the call memo lists eight. Those trouble areas include sale to minors. Um, it includes uh, engaging with drug cartels or other international criminal organizations and things like that. If uh, companies and individuals are abiding by those state laws, uh, the memorandum, the call memos, advise U.S. attorneys not to prosecute. Uh, it has essentially been amnesty for the marijuana industry and it has allowed the industry to feel safe, to feel protected from that federal level intervention. And even though federal raids do exist, they tend to exist on bad actors. And in many cases, the industry is applauding uh, those interventions because it helps weed out the bad and, and allow the good actors to rise to the top. Um, but like any, I mean, the coal memo is an executive action. Uh, it is only as good as uh, it, as long as the attorney general lets it stay in place. And James Cole has long left the Justice Department. Um, Eric Holder, of course, was replaced by Loretta Lynch, who has been replaced uh, by Jeff Sessions. And Sessions has let this be. He has not rescinded the Cole memos, uh, but he could at any moment. And he could start advising the U.S. attorneys, once we have actually confirmed U.S. attorneys, um, to start cracking down on these uh, legal marijuana operations. 
and or at least on recreational uh, marijuana operations. There's a weird federal provision and a spending bill that has some protections for medical entities. Uh, but like I said, like with most executive actions, it is it can be temporary. And even even while Jeff Sessions has had very harsh words throughout his career and since becoming attorney general about marijuana, that patchwork that what I like to say the duct tape that's holding the industry together remains in place. So we don't know what's going to happen. I think anyone who tells you they know what's going to happen is fooling you unless that person is Jeff Sessions. But we it's sort of up in the air. And for a lot of people in the industry, they're nervous about it. And rightly so. Yeah, I mean, that would make a certain amount of sense, given that, you know, there's not a clarity, not a lot of clarity with regard to exactly how the the Justice Department will proceed, particularly with the states that have legalized marijuana. And, and it looks like, you know, as you point out in a lot of your work, it continues to move forward um, as a as a sort of re- policy reform area. And one of the points that you make right towards the end of the book, which is another layer of sort of regulation on marijuana, is with regard to the UN. Um, and I hadn't realized until I read your book that the UN also had some policy with regard to um, sort of marijuana and drugs in general. And so you you note that the UN has an has an important role possibly with regard to the reforms in marijuana policy and obviously with the entire country of Canada possibly moving in the in the direction of legalization and as you point out the sort of patchwork legalization in the United States. Um, what is the UN policy with regard to marijuana? Um, legalization, as it were, and and how might that also be reformed? So UN policy dates back to the 1960s when uh, member states ratified the Single Convention on Narcotic Drugs, which is sort of the Magna Carta of drug policy in the world. And the Controlled Substances Act, which most, excuse me, most people are familiar with, is the United States statutory obligation uh, to the requirements of that that treaty of the single convention. That is what brought the um, Americans in line with the single convention. That single convention has had some amendments made to it over the years, but it remains a good international law. It is holding international law. Uh, the challenge for legalization is that uh, marijuana is illegal internationally. The only exceptions within the law, within the treaty rather, are for scientific study, which of course is done in the United States, and there are medical exceptions. So a state, a, a member state, meaning a nation, um, c- could legalize medical marijuana. And as long as it is regulated by the federal government, by the national government, um, it would be in compliance with the treaty. There can be no situation in which a member nation can legalize recreational marijuana without violating that treaty. So Uruguay has done this. Uruguay has explicitly violated the single convention when they legalized in 2013. Canada, if it ends up passing the plan that it hopes to pass and have legalization, uh, the the new reality by July 2018, they will be explicitly violating uh, the single convention. There's some question about whether the U.S. is doing it because federal law has not changed. Um, It still considers marijuana illegal and the federal government still enforces against it. But states which are not themselves parties to the convention 
are changing their laws. Um, I think an argument can be made that the coal memo is probably a violation of the uh, of the treaty because it is uh, pulling the federal government back from enforcing uh, the law in keeping in with the obligations of the single convention. But yeah, the, the international level creates an extra level of uh, an extra challenge, I think, for legalization supporters uh, because it is crystal clear. Now, that said, what's the U.N. going to do about it is, is the next question. And they're not, not going to do much. Uh, they didn't do anything to Uruguay. So I don't think they're going to do anything to Canada and certainly not the United States. But it is an additional wrinkle that that makes this even more complicated. And so um, I want to ask this question, which is, you know, sort of my curiosity, having gone through this case study with my students, fielding questions from them, reading your work and reading some other work is like, what is the most interesting or unexpected thing you've learned about marijuana in your research? Uh, so I will say the the complexity of how scheduling works um, was sort of the thing that was most interesting to me as a nerd and as a political scientist and as a, an executive branch um, politics person. Uh, the The regulatory system that is constructed within the Controlled Substances Act around how a drug could be rescheduled, that is, moved from one to two or one to three or from three to one or removed from the schedules entirely, um, is something that a lot of people uh, talk about quite often without any idea of how it works. And so I actually spent about a year through a series of papers, and it's part of it is included in this book, trying to teach uh, the policy community about exactly how this works. And so, you know, there are, there are weaknesses in, in this book and there's weaknesses in, in other parts of my work well, generally, but on, on marijuana as well. But this is one of the areas that um, I think a political scientist adds value because most, most scholars of marijuana policy do not have a political science background. And they either have a public policy background or a legal background or um, an economic one. And so as political scientists, we're able to understand not just uh, regulatory policy, but also the administrative apparatus, the administrative framework uh, that goes into a policy like this. And uh, for me, it was jarring just how many people were involved in this process, uh, how much discretion there was for some actors and how little discretion there was for others. Uh, And that was... Uh, for me, like I said, from a nerd perspective, the thing that was most interesting uh, from uh, a general perspective, uh, what was most interesting to me is just how eager and excited people are to talk about this and, and people from all walks of life, uh, from uh, senior citizens to teenagers, uh, men, women, white, black, Latino, everyone um, is is eager to put in their two cents, talk about their own experience, um, sort of whisper, uh, whisper at me to tell me about that one time they went into a marijuana dispensary because they were vacationing in, in Denver. And, uh, you know, there's still a lot of embarrassment around those things. Uh, but uh, the, the diversity was shocking. And, and frankly, as someone who studies the presidency, uh, it made my October and November and December and January much easier when I got asked the traditional D.C. line when you meet someone. And that is, 
what do you do for a living? I would just say I study marijuana policy because I wasn't going near telling people that I studied the presidency. Wise choice there. (laughs) Um, So are you continuing to work on marijuana policy or are you doing other, you know, research and into into other areas at this point? So what are you working on now? So what I'm working on now uh, in terms of marijuana policy is a transition into some of the criminal justice aspects of it. This is something that I have not, has not been uh, a lead in my research. It has not really driven my research. Um, I would say, uh, because I'm a a white male, I'm afforded um, the opportunity uh, for this not to really uh, drive the way I think about this. Whereas um, for uh, you know, a, a black or Latino uh, brother or sister, um, their experience with uh, marijuana, marijuana enforcement um, is probably one in which criminal justice issues would drive the way they think. And uh, but that said, it's a, a critically important point. Some of the states that have come online, particularly California, um, has uh, t- taken great steps to try to reverse some of the criminal justice and history historical inequities that exist in marijuana enforcement. Uh, And so uh, one of the most curious questions for me and something I'm starting to explore in my research now is that in states that have legalized marijuana, and in particular Colorado and Washington, because they've been online the longest, commercial sales of marijuana have been available in Colorado since January 1st of 2014 and since the summer of 2014 in Washington. Uh, There is... Uh, not much progress being made in uh, racial inequities in enforcement of existing marijuana laws. So that is, there are still racial disparities uh, in states that have legalized marijuana uh, for the crimes that still exist. So those crimes include having too much marijuana, growing it illegally, trafficking it, um, or uh, using it in public. Now, we know from polling that whites and non-whites use marijuana at about the same rate, uh, but uh, people of color are four times more likely to be arrested uh, for even things like simple possession of marijuana. So I'm looking at uh, right now what is happening, what states, what counties, what municipalities have done well, have made progress, um, and what places have not. And then trying to get into those law enforcement environments to try to understand why things haven't changed, what's going on uh, to maintain those those racial disparities and try to make recommendations for how policy can improve uh, in those areas, because they matter to the lives of a lot of individuals, um, particularly young people and people of color and the cross section of the two, because these cut off. I should back up. If this is your first introduction to the criminal justice system, and for many young people, marijuana is it, um, it immediately gives you a criminal record that cuts off economic opportunities and a variety of other opportunities throughout your life. It is something that is very hard to get off your back. Uh, And uh, so that's meaningful work that needs to be done. The ACLU has done some um, and others have done some as well. And uh, I'm throwing my hat into that ring as well. On the presidency side, um, Donald Trump is obviously keeping me quite busy. Um, he is for marijuana and he is um, for a variety of topics. We're uh, going to be launching very soon a, a massive project at the Brookings Institution on uh, transparency and government, uh, both in- internationally and domestically. Uh, 
And that's going to be a real opportunity uh, for me to use some of the work that I've uh, written on uh, previously, particularly my, my first book, which was Presidential Pork, which looked at uh, how federal spending can be politicized by presidents. Um, and uh, using that again, looking at the politicization or uh, the corruption of uh, uh, contracting internationally, um, uh, state spending internationally and domestically, and sort of, like I said, getting back to my roots. Marijuana keeps me occupied, and it's uh, something that's very interesting to me. Uh, but uh, so, too, is uh, keeping keeping an eye on the executive branch and, and dealing with those issues um, that, like I said, I'm, I'm traditionally trained in, uh, but uh, have sort of been distracted by uh, this marijuana research. So when you finish that book on transparency or lack thereof, you'll come back on new books in political science, won't you? Absolutely. It's always a pleasure uh, to come on the podcast. And as long as I keep, uh, you know, uh, driving myself crazy and writing books, I will be glad to, to grab another invitation back. Thanks a lot for joining us today. And where can people pick up Marijuana, A Short History? Uh, Marijuana, A Short History is available online at the Brookings Press website or from Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or wherever you normally buy your books. Great. Thanks so much for being with me today, John. It's a pleasure to talk to you about this really fascinating book. I recommend it. Um, and I look forward to speaking with you again on the New Books and Political Science podcast. Uh, Lily, the pleasure has all been mine um, and look forward to chatting with you soon. Thanks so much. <laughs> 